welcome to the DM Bobcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. And I'm Mike. Yes, sir, listener. We have brought back Mike Herman, a longtime friend of the show, multiple time guest from close to the earliest days of the show, because we have a lot of fucking hot takes going on in the world of, uh, of entertainment media. And when it's time to discuss controversial issues or WTF moments, Mike's our go-to man. So, thank you, thank you. Yes, I can't. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am because, well, I'm going to get into it later. But I believe we are uh, facing a cataclysmic shift in the entertainment industry uh, just in this past year, man. And the year is not even close to being over. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. It's Yeah, it's going to be pretty awesome. And uh, listener, a little bit of a different format on this episode. Um, we are going our three classic segments. We're going to try to keep them reasonable. But for the first time ever on the history of this show, we will have a guest host, quote unquote, host a segment. So I'm looking forward to that. So uh, Mike's going to grab a segment here and Leland and I'll take the other two. But yeah, I don't know, Mike. I don't know if there's anything cool you've been up to since I think you were on last year at some point, but uh, I don't know if you've been rocking it in life. Anything to bring up? Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the most uh, maybe exciting uh, thing going on in my life is uh, I work on a Star Wars show. What? Which one? Uh, it's called uh, Young Jedi Adventures. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's, uh, I mean, it's aimed for kids. You know, it's not quite the uh, Mandalorian or uh, Andor, but... You know, my uh, my nieces and nephews are enjoying it, so um, hell yeah. That's awesome, buddy. Well, I mean, I uh, I actually just got here after watching Rebels. I'm trying to catch up with Rebels before uh, Ahsoka comes out in a month or two. Oh yeah, apparently a new trailer for that drops today. I haven't seen it yet. Yes, it's good. And if I start to discuss that trailer, it's going to take like 20 minutes and end up with Leland and I arguing about the Force and what constitutes the force. <laughs> You're rocking it out on that show and, and involved in uh, stars, which I'm sure is going to come up again in our segments once, if not multiple times. But Leland, my understanding was you, you had a pretty eventful June. I don't know if you want to talk about it or hint at it, but it was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had uh, uh, the Incursion Party Con in uh, middle of June, right before Origins Game Fairs, uh, or Origins Game Fair 2023 in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Nice. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a great time. It was exhausting. Um, I got very sick after with Con Crud is something that usually happens at large, large gatherings of people. Uh, so that wasn't the best, but I got to experience it for the first time. And I, I think I'll probably talk about Origins more in uh, Crazy About Cardboard, uh, probably a little bit. But yeah, no, it, it was awesome. It was great. That's awesome, boys. Well, we got a stacked show, and I think we're all uh, excited for it. Um, so let's uh, jump into the banter segment here. Um, Leland, anything you want to discuss specifically in banter? Yeah, I uh, finally watched uh, the Power Rangers Once and Always uh, Netflix movie. And uh, it was not good. It wasn't good. Ooh. It was, it was very Power Rangers. It was very the watching the original the OG series in the '90s when I was a kid. Like it felt exactly like that. It's just very cheesy dialogue and acting, and it it is what it is. I wasn't expecting anything more, but it was uh, yeah, it was a bit of a cringe to get through. 
That's that's rough. W- w- would you say, Leland, would you say it was like a case of where you look at nostalgia and rose-colored glasses, but when you're confronted with new nostalgia, like in this Power Rangers way, you're just like, uh, yeah, I don't like this anymore. Or is it different? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I wonder if I would feel the same going back and like rewatching this, this series. Right. And like, if it would feel the same, like what I remember of it and my experience, remember watching as a kid, like it feels like this movie is, is it's like a pretty good continuation of it. Like it's fine. Right. It's like clearly directed towards a younger audience. And, but is, but, but is that movie, is this movie really targeting that audience? Because like, it's bringing back OG Power Rangers as many as I could get, uh, you know, barring deaths or refusal to be part of it. Kimberly. <laughs> Kimberly. Yeah, Pink Ranger. Pink Ranger. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know who's the, I don't know who that movie was for because I don't know. Fuck it. It was what it, it was what it was. It was whatever. It was whatever. I think if you enjoyed the Power Rangers as a kid growing up, you'd probably like enjoy watching the film, but as a movie, it's terrible. How about you, Mike? Do you, do you have anything uh, bad, anything random outside of your segment you want to bring up? Uh, yeah. Have you guys uh, talked about The Flash yet? A, a little bit, but not since it's been released at all. We only talked about it like three months ago. Oh, okay. So uh, have we all seen it? Can we spoil it? What's the deal on that? I have not seen it, no. I have not seen it. I don't care if it's spoiled. Leland, do you give a fuck if it's spoiled? Um, yeah, I do. I'll watch it eventually, but I'm not paying to go see it in the theaters. I mean, Mike, if you want to instead just give general thoughts on The Flash that are non-spoilery, like, okay, like, I could have a few questions for you that are non-spoilery. Number one, one of the worst things I heard about that movie is that the computer graphics are unfinished or poor quality. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, it looks pretty rough in some points, for sure. I think, like, there's definitely, like, some sequences that people, specific, uh, like, specific sequences that were pointed out that... I personally saw in the theater, I was like, oh, I don't remember that really kind of being too jarring or taking uh, me out of the movie. But there was definitely some some ones in there that were pretty rough, to say the least. But, you know, there's also a lot of, you know, sequences that were really good. I, and I just find it interesting, though, that the movie had been sitting on the shelf for so long. It, it makes me wonder is, I guess once a movie is sort of finished, because they had an initial release date, right? So once a movie is kind of finished and, you know, it's been budgeted and all that, I guess it's just like they don't it just sits there, right? Like, I think people have this perspective that, hey, you know, the Flash has been sitting there for so long. You think they would have, like, fine-tuned those effects and that they would have been working on that time. And I honestly don't – it just doesn't seem like it's ever the case. Yeah, it's – you know what I find interesting about it, Mike, is they had – they didn't release Batgirl, which was apparently, like, 100% done. And they go ahead and they release the Flash, but, like – Batgirl didn't have the controversy behind it, but like Ezra Miller had had all this water under the bridge in the past couple of years. And I personally don't know why DC went forward with an Ezra Miller-led film. I still can't figure that out. Yeah, the only thing I can think about is that they just had too much money poured into it. And maybe they just thought, hey, if we marketed it off Batman and Superman alone, which they kind of did attempt, you know, uh, maybe we can still make it profitable. I mean, they really kind of did try to spin the story leading up, you know, to the release of it. And, and so they, you know, their, their PR was working double time. 
on um, you know on the whole Ezra Miller situation leading up to the release. So and the movie bombed, so it was definitely a failed experiment. So many movies have bombed recently or underperformed. I should include that caveat, but like they're not profitable. And like you said, I mean, you, you feel like we're on this downward sort of starting to roll down the hill, starting to maybe get busted up, take some injuries in Hollywood. And I, I start to see that happening, at least financially. Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, with one of those movies that you mentioned underperformed, I'm, I think Indiana Jones was one of the, the most recent ones, too. And uh, Yep. I, I mean, I don't want to kind of bury the lead here, but the reality is, is that people are not uh, going into use as much as they used to. And in my segment, yeah, we'll definitely tackle why that could be, or, you know, maybe discuss theories of why that is. But yeah, back back to the uh, the Flash, I will say, I was mentioning in the marketing that Superman and uh, Batman, or Supergirl and Batman, are very heavily marketed in the, uh, in the movie. And I will say, if you are going into the movie to watch that, you might be disappointed because they are not in it all that much. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> I mean, Leela knows I am, like, all about Ooh, Michael Keaton. Boy, boy. So, I just want to know if in the screen time he got, does Michael Keaton deliver? Michael Keaton is excellent. That screen time that he gets, he makes the most of it. It's just... Again, I don't want to go... I don't want to go into... Uh, Anything spoilerish, but he, uh, he he definitely feels a little bit superfluous in the movie. Like I wouldn't interesting say he's serves more than you know being. Hey, I'm Michael Keaton and I'm back, and it's not a bad thing. But I think if you would compare it to something like No Way Home, I think they're probably a better example of bringing back a legacy character and using them well. But yeah, Michael Keaton is still great. Like you're still gonna love everything you see. Um, definitely, also a different, and you've probably seen this in the trailers. A very much more mobile uh, and acrobatic uh, Michael Keaton than what we've seen before. So, and uh, he probably had help of a computer to be that mobile. That's that's all I'm gonna say. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, the, the the thing I brought to banter actually may have changed my perspective on video game piracy. And what it is, is it's a study by, I've got this link open here, the Video Game History Foundation. And they found out of all U.S. released video games prior to 2010, so only 13 years ago, 87% of all video games ever created are no longer available of games made pre 2010. And that shocked me. That floored me because I've traditionally been an anti-piracy guy. I've been a guy that like, if it's legal and it costs two bucks on like goodgame.com or steam or whatever, pay for it. If it's on Xbox game pass, old Xbox to play, but to find out 87% of games only slightly over a decade ago are no longer available made me think like, you know, WTF Nintendo, WTF Sony, like you got to get, you got to get some of these old games out there or you can't get mad when people treat it like abandonware and quote unquote 
pirate it. Like if it's literally not available on a legal service, I mean, I'd love for Nintendo or Sony or Xbox to tell me, but it's kind of changed my mind, man. I uh, no, I agree with you one hundred percent on that because um, it's not something I'm obviously like too knowledgeable on, but I've, I, I mean, I've heard about the whole thing about gaming and that they don't preserve games as well as they do films, for example. Like films are very well preserved and games are just not, you know, preserved in the same manner. Like, you know, remember the famous uh, incident with the E.T. games that ended up in that landfill? Yeah, the Alamogorda landfill. I know all about that crazy urban legend turned true. Exactly. So, I mean, this doesn't uh, totally shock me, but I totally agree that also, you know, certain things are just like it's, it's impossible to get your hands on. And, um, yeah, I, I think, like, I, I've played a lot of old games that um, I've ended up pirating just because, you know, they're not easily available or they're really expensive to buy because, you know, there's not a lot of copies available in that game. Good point. Leland, I want your opinion. I know you're not much of a retro gamer. Hearing the stat that I just gave out, like, what is your thought for other people that want to play these retro games? Yeah, I don't know where I fall exactly. It's like... I don't think I don't feel like collectors editions are much of a thing. And obviously I'm talking more from the console side of it. Like seventh, eighth generation of consoles, you know, there was a huge thing to get a collection. Like I mean, I was looking so you know, I've been getting rid of a bunch of shit and basically cleaning up the apartment and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, making room for, for Emma uh, now that she's here. Basically, and I'm like looking through my stack of old PS3 games because I still have my PS3, and now I have three generations of PlayStations that I don't really know what to do with. But looking at my PS3 games that are like worthless right now, but like just looking at all the collection I had, I had like God of War collections, Sly Cooper collections, Metal Gear Solid collections. Nobody's doing that anymore, so why aren't they? I mean, it's funny though because I think my opinion of it at the time was like. Yeah, this is awesome to be able to have these from the previous generation and, and further back, but also like you're still charging me full MSRP for these fucking this collection, like you dirty bastards, you know. So it's like a, a double edged uh, sword kind of thing. Uh, yeah, you're almost hoisting yourself on your own petard when you're asking for this kind of shit. But I I agree. I mean, it, 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 that is a pretty astounding stat, and I don't know. That seems like it's so much. It's it would be so easy to just put these games out on like 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 you say like a good old games and steam and it's just a service that i mean i guess isn't on console but how do you do that with old console games without pouring more money into it what's the equation that they're going to be applying to the effort and cost of making those older games available somewhere versus what they expect to generate as far as uh, you know money from them like obviously some that has to be a huge part of it or this just something that like nobody in the industry is thinking about at all i mean i don't that that can't be the case i know now i wish i had more specifics but i know that disney has to do like epic four-dimensional gymnastics to keep mickey mouse out of the public domain because mickey mouse is so old so at some point media starts to become part of the public domain in the United States. I should speak in this case specifically of the U S 
But at some point, that media becomes public domain unless you put in a lot of effort to stop it, which Disney has. But I'm starting to think like a number of these games would fall under free domain or abandonware. I mean, there's a website and it's pretty big. As far as I know, it's legal. It's called uh, myabandonware.com. And it has tons of old like video games and computer games, especially from like the 1980s and 1990s. And I mean, like, I'm probably the oldest person here, but shareware floppy disk games from the early to mid 1990s, like almost all of those that I grew up with are on this website right now. And it's never been shut down. And there's stuff from like the 1990s. Like I love MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries and MechWarrior 2, several versions of it are on myabandonware.com, have been there for many years. In fact, there's a computer game I like from 2001 called Freelancer, which Lee Linda, I know you love Star Citizen. Freelancer was the spiritual prequel to that. And Freelancer, even though I own it on CD-ROM or DVD-ROM, I no longer have a DVD-ROM in my new gaming computer, so I just download it from my abandonware. Works well. But again, my point is, is like a video game from 2001 is still there. And I, I think like, a, uh, you know, someone like Chris Roberts who programmed Freelancer, if you don't want your video game on an abandonware website, then I think you do have to put the expense in to get it out somehow. And in the world of like uh, streaming video game services or cloud-based video game services like Steam or Epic, Epic Games, I think you should be able to do that nowadays. No, I 100% agree. Like, yeah, if you're not going to make the game easily accessible um, to people, you know, they're going to find other means to get it more convenient. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're going to sue someone or try to tell someone to cease and desist, that means there has to be damages made. But if you have no product available that you're selling and you just say, well, I'm taking damage, um, you know, I hope if this ever went to court, a judge right away at like a lower circuit court is just going to go, well, there's no damages here. You don't have anything for sale. You, yeah, sure. You have intellectual property, but it's as if someone drew Mickey Mouse on a napkin, didn't do anything with it. And someone else takes it and makes a cartoon out of it. Well, what damages? You didn't do anything with it. You didn't have plans to. Yeah. And these games are so old now. It's not like there's like code in there that is like all that useful to you know, have like like either like to like another company, right? Like, it yeah, I, I um, yeah, it it, it seems uh, not yeah, not really worthwhile to get uh, arms about it. Awesome. Well, I don't want to uh, you know drag that topic to death or anything because I know we got a lot to cover. But uh, do either of you have anything you want to bring up in the banter segment or? I say let's let's move on. Let's get into it. All right. Well, we'll go into the first segment today, the first main segment, which is our video game variety show. I have tentatively titled this one as We Apologize for Apologizing, because that seems like all what AAA video game studios are doing nowadays. They release a game, the game is buggy, and they immediately start apologizing for it, and... It's like, well, why didn't you have some of these major bugs cleaned out before you release the game? Like, it, it honestly seems like it's automatic nowadays. Oh, it's buggy. Shit. We're sorry. We'll fix it over the next year. And, like, what, what the fuck is up with that? Yeah, it's almost become the status quo, right, to, to get a game that's unfinished. It's almost like more of an anomaly if you get a game that is, like, bug-free. It's, uh, yeah, 
and, and sometimes uh, there's cases where games get released on platforms and they're just unplayable. I, I'm going to make an abstract allusion to a movie here. And it might not be a movie both of you have seen, but trust me, I have a point with this. There's a movie I like called Friday Night Lights from 2004. And it's about a football coach in high school, Texas. And when he first arrives there, the sheriff meets him. The sheriff's like, hi, coach, win state. And he's like, yeah, thank you. You know, we'll do our best. He's like, yeah, that's good. Win state. Just win. Just win state. And where I'm going with that is I read an article that basically said the video game industry is like that, especially with cyclical games that keep coming up, uh, like sports games, FIFA, Madden. I know they're not the main culprits. You have 10 months to complete this game. This game will be completed. It doesn't matter if it has 2 million bugs or 2 bugs. The game will be completed. You will win state. You will finish the game. And the problem is, it's not that these games are completed. It's that they're truncated. They're allowed to develop a certain amount of time and then chop. They hit a deadline. And the company basically packages up, throws it out for full price, might I add. Now full price is pretty much like 70 bucks US because they've raised the price of AAA games. But they basically truncate. They're like, no, development time's done. Throw it out there without the traditional bug fixing, debugging, testing that games would, would have normally. That's one of my philosophies. And like I said, I've read that in several online articles. Do you two agree that that's a problem in the AAA video game industry? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean... There's, I mean, there's countless examples of, you know, big games coming out. And, I mean, obviously, Cyberpunk is the most notable one. Um, yeah, big games coming out just completely broken. And I, I, I wish I could remember the quote, but there's some philosophy about, you know, from someone from Nintendo about if you release a broken game, you know, it's always going to be a broken game. I just don't think... I, I, I think it's just an upward... Um, an uphill battle for these companies to release this broken game and then um, have to win their audience back and win their goodwill back. And it's like even Cyberpunk, they got this big massive update coming out where it's basically putting things in the game that probably should have been there from the start and were promised from the start. And it sounds like we are now officially getting the Cyberpunk that we were initially promised. But that, yeah, but that was like how many years later? Like when did Cyberpunk came out? I think it came out twenty nineteen. I think it was right. Three other words for you: No Man's Sky. I mean, that game was so hyped, and then when it came out, it was like incomplete. Everybody hated it. Then it was fixed like two years later, and now it's the great original game. And it's like, just take the time to release it that in the first place. You know, I'm a Nintendo fanboy, and I probably pump up Nintendo too much. But Nintendo still waits to release games until they think they're ready. And they did that with the recent Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. They actually delayed the whole game by a year because they thought it wasn't ready. And how is Nintendo rewarded? Well, they sell a record amount of copies more than anything they've ever made ever in the first week. So turns out pretty good for them. But Leland, I see an unusual look on your face. Oh, Give it to me, brother. All right. You just had to go into the bullshit Nintendo Zelda crap. Look, I love Nintendo. Nintendo sold, Nintendo sold record-breaking copies of Tears of Kingdom on the back of Breath of, Wild, Breath of the Wild. Not based on anything that they did additionally in the studios or made any other decisions about that sequel. It, like you said, in the first week... There's no amount of word of mouth that could hype up 
how great Tears of the Kingdom is in the first week of it being released, that could impact the sales. The sales were going to be the sales. So <laughs> I know I'm tangenting hard just because you're bringing up fucking Nintendo Go again. For it, buddy. Go but for it. what? But <laughs> but my overall point is that I don't <laughs> I don't know if Nintendo is doing anything like drastically different than some of these other studios. And I agree with you. Making a decision to delay a huge game is a obviously a good decision on Nintendo's part, right? There's no doubt about that. But I don't know if it's really, compa- I don't know if it's comparing apples to apples or what, but most of these studios that are, that we are seeing the failings from are now becoming the, the known studios that, that fail to deliver on their products. Still though, those are studios that are relying on their previous reputation. I mean, just look at Bethesda immediately is coming to mind, right? Let's see how how well Starfield functions when it's uh, on release day, all right? Because it's not going to be a perfect game. No Bethesda game has ever been a perfect game on launch or years after launch, okay? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the what the answer is. But I don't I, I don't think that in the case of, you know, Cyberpunk, would, de- would delaying, would having delayed Cyberpunk... Yet another year from CD Projekt Red made a difference in the final product. I mean, it had to, it would have made some difference, but like you said, Mike, how many years later, more than a year later, we're finally getting what they've actually been promised and what people thought the game was supposed to be. So how many years can they really delay it? I mean, they've, and that's not to excuse the behavior, obviously, but I don't know if the answer is always as simple as we'll just delay it. Because it's it's the the problem is rooted in the culture of the entire industry. It's to the core of the industry's culture, and the crunch culture that the industry has been relying on for decades. So how the fuck do you fix that? Yeah, no, that's a very good point, Leland. And I think I think it's all about I, I, I guess maybe how the studio's I guess relationship is with their publisher, right? So like Nintendo. I feel like they are, do have that luxury of delaying games as long as they want. It's clear Rockstar is another studio that has that luxury where, I mean, when was, when did GTA 5 come out? Like almost 10 years ago now? Like, I think it's getting to that because I think it came out in 2012 if I'm uh, mistaken. So I, 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 yeah, I don't, I wonder what I have, what that is. Maybe, yeah, maybe more certain publishers are willing to get more leeway. Um, whereas, yeah, maybe it is based off reputation because obviously we know, you know, Rockstar has a great reputation. They're going to deliver. And then, you know, Nintendo is, I guess, their own sort of banner, so they can do whatever the fuck they want. So, yeah, maybe that, that's sort of the contribution there of why these are the exceptions and not the rule. Um, but really quick, the, yeah, the quote was uh, from Miyamoto, which was, a delayed game is eventually good, but a rush game is forever bad. Oh, that's good. I love that. Of course, it's Miyamoto, Leland. Of course, but like, I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's 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 get a round of applause for Miyamoto on that one. Uh, we won't go that far. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I, but yeah, I, I, my guess would be it's it's more of a, a publisher thing. I I do think Leland hit on a good point though. I just think it needs expansion. Where Leland said it's part of this crunch culture, and what I would say is up until recently, crunch culture was oh my god, we're you know, 16 hours, 18 hours a day to finish the game. Now crunch culture is, oh my God, work 16 hours a day to release the game. 
there's a difference between completing the game and releasing the game. Because if there was crunch culture in 2002, you were sleeping over at the office, but it was like the playtesters that were sleeping over, the debuggers that were sleeping over. Get the game actually done. Now I think they've taken one step back so that it's, we just have to get the game out by November 26th. And if that means that, you know, testing, which comes at the end, is not complete, whatever, get the game out the door. That's what I guess or what I perceive is the distance or difference, personally. Yeah, no, I think you, you definitely hit on something. What, what could po- – okay, let's look at, you know, the, the worst offender this year, uh, Redfall. Gollum? <laughs> well, okay, okay. Gollum, no, you, you, you Gollum might be right. Gollum killed the studio. Yeah, Gollum absolutely. The studio. Ab- so what, who, like, who ever made the decision to give the, you know, push the big green button to say, all right, start the printers on either of those games, Redfall or Gollum, to put it out to the public in the state that it was, like, they should be lined up and shot, right? Like, <laughs> who is making those decisions? Leland, you, you were like Icarus. You almost touched genius there, then your wings melted. Because you said, who the fuck pressed the green button to start? And had you just said that, I would have 105% agreed with you. Who started the games? Because if you look at Redfall and Gollum, there were two studios that had never produced games like that before, but were instructed to produce a AAA game of a brand new genre to them, under a tight deadline. Right. And that's like a cancer that's causing a compounding of errors that most likely will lead to failure. And, and, and I mean, I can send links if we need them for the show notes. I, I know we only, whatever, but like if listener trusts what I'm saying, if you look up both Redfall and Gollum, those studios were not prepared to make those kind of games, which, which is weird. I would never, Go well, uh, maybe a podcast is a terrible answer. I'm trying to think like who would be the worst kind of guest to get on a podcast show, like someone who's never done it before, doesn't have confidence in it, but it's like, yeah, you've got to do it and throw in your mic because we're recording in five minutes. That's what it feels like in these cases. I mean, I I would argue that whoever is making that decision has to have some type of confidence. The confidence, maybe not in the studio itself, it's, I wouldn't go that far, but at least the confidence that they're going to turn some type of profit, handing it to the people that they're handing it to. There has to be some level of confidence in the competency of the you know whomever is being handed these projects. I agree that both those studios being put in that situation is terrible for them. And it's completely unfair to everybody working at those studios on both of those projects. But there has to have at least started to, to to be some level of competency that either impressed the people that are deciding to give it to them or 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 what is it like is it they literally like thinking they can just scam the consumer and just throw a, here take this run with whatever the fuck you want to do here's uh x y and z as far as stipulations and criteria you have to meet it doesn't matter what it is because we'll probably make some money on it. like is that what's happening like is that the i don't know what to think I, I want to throw this to Mike because Mike is actually in the entertainment industry. And I don't want to ask you anything loaded, Mike, that you're not comfortable answering. But 
you know, I'm wondering like how much influence there might be from the quote unquote suits corporate up above in entertainment production that maybe select uh, a terrible casting director who's got a bad reputation or bad producers or puts the budget way too low for something like do you have any idea where this disconnect between desire and competency is occurring um i think it usually just comes down to, to financials if i'm being honest so uh, i'm not sure this is the best example but this is the one that immediately came to my mind but there is a uh, showwriter uh, named scott buck and he was a uh, responsible basically for the last few seasons of Dexter, which yep. everybody hated. He did what was it, Iron Fist? Ooh. Also, not very popular. Uh-huh. Uh, and in Inhumans, and um, people were like, "Why does this guy, you know, keep getting hired all the time?" And really, what it came down to was the dude always shot under budget. He always shot ahead of schedule. And he just, you know, he fucking got it done, man. He was his journeyman, and his journeyman can get. And, you know, that's sometimes what comes down to. And they also, you know what, maybe he was cheap as well. Maybe his salary obviously probably didn't cost all that much. And maybe that, yeah, maybe that's why guys like Scott Bach can get work. And then maybe when you get someone that is a little less experienced, that just gives, you know, the corporate overheads a lot more leeway to sort of push somebody around because they're they're new. Like remember when we had that sort of boom of let's hire the AD director to sell this big blockbuster? Yeah. And how kind of terrible that experiment has sort of been and you kind of find out most of the time it's like, oh yeah, well the studio ended up, you know, kind of overriding them anyways. And you know, and a lot of these these action scenes are all done in pre production um, you know, kind of find out pre production anyways before these people get here. And I, I, so, yeah, I guess long story short, I, I think like whenever you hire someone in the entertainment uh, industry for their competence, it's usually for those reasons. It's usually money or, you know, whatever, whatever is financially um, important to you. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it, it all comes down to the almighty dollar when it comes to the entertainment industry. And I mean, there's, there's so many ways we could go with that. I think. I think it's sometimes why you see so little creativity and boldness and so many sequels, whether that's video games or movies. It's like, well, people bought it before, so hopefully they'll, they'll buy it again, right? And that's what they think, recycling these, these things over and over. Because I know on this segment we don't have too, too much time left, I did want to bring up something that uh, is at least annoying to me, which is always online video games for DRM purposes do either of you care about always online video games or is it just me or i'm just throwing that to the crowd um yes because um and you're seeing this with a lot of these uh games as a service uh titles that they were sort of dumping over the last few years is if they just decide to you know stop how is it basically shut down the servers of those games yeah you're done like you can't play it anymore for example, there was this game on my Oculus Quest 2 that I really enjoyed. Um, that was a free game. Uh, it was like a fucking like zero-G frisbee um, game. Anyways, it was free. It was super fucking rad. And then one day they just um, decided to uh, shut down the servers. And now the game is just no longer playable. And, you know, I, I honestly would have... 
enjoy it if I could even play it offline, but you can't. And um, I, I just think that's a real shame. I think that, like, when you're talking about, you know, games sort of getting lost at time, um, this is just another contribution to that. Yeah, no, I, I actually think you bring up some uh, <laughs> some really good points there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Leland, I don't know if you've got anything else to add on this particular subject. For me, it's uh, the like a game, Cycle Frontier. I don't know if either of you are familiar with it. I'm actually not. Cycle Frontier is like uh, an extraction looter shooter. Uh, a la Escape from Tarkov, um, you know, tendencies of it in Hunt Showdown kind of thing. But they're shutting down their servers. And it's not, I mean, it, it is a it is a multiplayer. It's like a PvPvE game type game. So there's, it's a, it's the, the multiplayer aspect of it requires like hosted servers for it to, you know, to continue much like escape from Tarkov would, et cetera. Right. But they're just, they are, they can't, it's not profitable. I mean, a lot of people like the game, uh, enjoy that genre, especially it's kind of unique cause it's like futuristic and there's different types of like dinosaur-esque creatures on the planet that you dropping into to loot and get out of etc that's kind of the pve elements of it but there i think come september of this year they're going to be you will no longer be able to play the game and this is a game that you've purchased i mean it's not full msrp right but you've probably purchased you potentially have made uh you know in-game purchases of it like everything in their store currently is like 95 percent, if not 100 percent off so like they're they're trying to make it as as best for their player base as they can but they just cannot maintain the servers and keep it running because it's not profitable enough for them i mean they had a big problem with cheaters that they really did a great job on stamping down and getting rid of to make the game actually playable for their player base again but i don't know if that's was the kind of the final nail in, in their coffin or, or the the market is that tight that specific genre market is becoming more and more saturated i don't know if that played into it too but it's like games like that that just up one day is just gone i mean just can you imagine if one day uh, CIG is like, you know what? We can't can, can continue to host Star Citizen servers, so the game's just going to be kaput. I mean, it's a forever live service. That game has to exist that way. That's the only way that game can exist. So that's the side that I come from and the where I'm like, man, that really sucks for that player base when these types of games just die on the vine because the studios can no longer afford to keep them going. Here's me disagreeing with you, Leland, by saying you are 100% correct, <laughs> because I feel the same way. Um, Mike, you probably don't know this, but I've spent an ungodly amount of money because outside of podcasting, one of my favorite hobbies is naval history. And there's a computer game, PC game called World of Warships. Not sure if you've heard of it. It's kind of free to play, but you can buy like all sorts of battleships from history for real money. I have now officially spent $6,000 on that game since 2012. Been 10 years, but it's still $6,000. And that game is always online. And if that shuts off, I still enjoy it. I still play it every week. But if that game ever ends, I'm out. Like yeah. Leland said. You're out, out six, six grand. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, and honestly, I think these companies should be required as long as like they're solvent and not bankrupt. To at least keep like a minimum servers going, like a, at least a few servers. I, I don't know. That's my opinion. I don't know if anyone wants to agree, disagree, but like, come on. 
Well, I think that's just the inherent problem with digital products nowadays is, like they said, you, you don't own anything that you buy digitally. You know, all it takes is, you know, that product just to get wiped from the service. And, you know, it's no longer yours and it doesn't matter how much you spent on it. Um, yeah, and, and that's why I think to a lot of people it's very important to preserve physical uh, copies of uh, video games, movies. Such. Well, it's like, it's like and, and now listeners are not going to see this because we record in video, but we only ever post, obviously, as a podcast. Where I'm recording, I'm right beside one of my video game shelves, and I'm showing Leland and Mike my copy of Pikmin 2 from Nintendo, like Wii U. Now, it's an okay game. Nobody, you know, really gives a shit about it, but this is a physical copy. I can play this any minute of any day that I have my console. And maybe it sounds like I'm oversimplifying this, but in my mind, I'm really not. That's why I always try to buy physical if I can. There's no limitations on when I can play this game. Now, technically, if you read the manual, even for a physical copy of a game, technically you don't own it. It's a license, and it's been that way for like 30 years. But if you're not telling me there's a difference between a game that can be taken away as soon as it doesn't become popular and this physical game in a case right here, I'd say you're a liar because, of course, there's a huge difference. Because one I will guaranteed always have access to, and the other I will not. The other could be taken away. And to connect us with movies, which is two segments from now, we're going to Leland segment next in a minute here, but that's why I buy movies, Mike. I, I probably have like 800 movies, DVD or Blu-ray, because... I, I've had streaming for several years, and they take the shit I want to watch off all the time. I'm like, okay, I want to go back, watch this show on Netflix. It's gone. It's like, I hate that feeling, because I'm like, what am I paying $30 a month for? You're taking the stuff away I want to watch. I know that's not reasonable. I know these services have to pay licensing fees and whatnot. But again, if you own it physically, it's honestly one and done, as long as you have the correct hardware. Well said, no, 100%. Well, that's all I got ranting about the entire, you know, like, dystopia of the video game universe right now. <laughs> Leland, tell tell me about the hopeful everything is roses in Daffodil's world of board games. Well, in Crazy about Cardboard, uh, I don't know that I'm going to have any good news for you, but <laughs> I know we're, we're kind of trying to generalize the problem, like, you know, capital T, capital P, the problem uh, in each of these segments. I honestly think for board games, it's always the pro the problem has always been Kickstarter, although Kickstarter has also been the solution for the hobby's growth. So I have just a, a little bit, a little tale of a Kickstarter woe uh, that's currently going and just kind of one example and it's just kind of, to me, it, the, this example just speaks to, like, the problem in general with Kickstarter. And very, very, I think we'll find some parallels between how this company in particular, which obviously may not be the, you know, it's not a, it's not a monolith, clearly, like these people. So that might not apply to every single publisher that is utilizing Kickstarter. But I think they're, it's very reminiscent to me about this kind of crunch culture that that is pervasive in the video game industry so there's there's a publisher called mythic games 
they they put out I think uh, since 2017 about 13 or so projects that they funded, and currently uh, as of a couple months ago at least they've needed to ask for additional funding on one of their oh. projects. So they are developing or kickstarted uh, Six Siege, which is like a, a Rainbow Six based board game. Depending on your pledge level, they've asked for their backers to pay anywhere from 39 to 129 US dollars. Uh, again, if you you know at the if you've pledged at the highest pledge, which I think was like upwards of 300 US, because you get all the extra stuff, that's where the cost fl- fluctuates, right? Depending on what you've what you've done. But this this Kickstarter funded in June of 2021. They raised like 1.5 million, just shy of 11,000 backers. And this isn't the first time that this company has had to request this. In uh, July of 2022, they did a Darkest Dungeon board game, again, based off a video game, kind of a roguelike um, dungeon crawl game, a uh, video game. They, uh, at the time, their backers were asked to pay between like $18 to $69, again, based on, on the pledge. That game, Darkest Dungeon, funded in November 2020. And they are still delivering like a wave two of items for their backers. In that case, in Darkest Dungeon's case, apparently about 80% of those backers coughed up the extra dough, which allowed, you know, the 20,000 plus backers to get their, at least the wave one copies of, of that game. Leland, you are bringing up the one issue for the board game segment that I hoped you would bring up, which is I had started to notice on Kickstarter, even though I'm too scared to kickstart board games anymore, I'm like, wait a second, didn't these guys just kickstart for a similar game like a year ago, and now they're asking for more money on a new product to complete the old product? I had kind of been anecdotally noticing that and i was hoping you'd bring it up or else i would have to because i mean you're essentially validating my thought which is this is actually a thing and honestly that that's like i I don't know if you agree with me you boys but to me that sounds like fraud in a sense okay i just want to quickly add to that i actually feel like i'm having deja vu here because i swear like at least one or two of the episodes we have talked about kickstarting board games oh, yeah. before. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yep. and, and I don't know if this is the same game or this is just like a recurring problem. Recurring. Like, it's recurring. It's recurring, my friend. This is, this is, and this is the problem. Like this is the pervasive problem, right? So uh, Moby, I, I don't know. I wouldn't classify these as, as being new products. These are just new charges for old products. <laughs> okay. But, but on Kickstarter, don't they have to give you something tangible for more money? Like, if you're saying no. we need more money to convince, no, no, sir, no, they do not. More money. They okay. So for the darkest dungeon, because because darkest dungeon was they success, they got the they got the extra funds. They were successful in doing it, and they delivered some product. So at the time, the way it worked with that one, Mythic Games said they needed uh, that their backers collectively, and that does not necessarily, by the way I'm interpreting it, anyways, not necessarily mean every backer had to pay but they needed collectively to raise at least 50% of the additional costs that they were seeing in their production that they would cover, they and Red Hook Studios, which is the video game publisher of Darkest Dungeons, would cover the rest. Whatever percentage they didn't come up above 50, they would cover. So again, wow. like I said, they uh, with Darkest, wow. Darkest Dungeon, they got like 80% of their their additional costs. And they're, they've been saying that these additional costs are 
due to, you know, the Ukraine war. Uh, they are uh, a European country. I think they're based out of uh, uh, France. Ukraine war, uh, Ukraine war um, additional costs in materials. And they have admitted to a mix of poor management within the company itself. So by all, honestly, by all accounts, it doesn't sound like in this specific case that Mythic Games is out to, you know, defraud their backers. But let's get, I'll have a bit of additional information on Mythic Games specifically. So this just feels very much like Space Goat Productions that we talked about with Evil Dead, like Forever Go Right. Like they are just chaining projects to fund the previous projects. Like this is, it seems like this is exactly what is happening and that this company for them to be able to survive is in this situation. But I had said they had backed there. They had um, backed. No, they had had 13 funded, 13 projects since about 2017. It seems like they have a new project since 2017 to about 2021. They've had a new projects like every like six to seven months launching wow. a new project. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Many of them from varying levels of success. Some only raising a, a couple hundred thousand to upwards of like a few million, like a couple million in depending on the IP that they're dealing with. Right. They have stated. So I, I was looking at some of the updates and some of their other projects. There's um, a project, a game called Monster Apocalypse. No idea what the game is, but on their, their last update for that game was in March of 2023. And essentially it stated that it would be some time before they can move forward with production on it because what they are doing, deciding to do as a company is to focus on the last project that they have yet to fund. So they're not putting any attention to do anything in their additional projects until in this case, you know, Darkest Dungeon or whatever it is, is completely fulfilled. And then they move on Mm. to the next one. So Monster Apocalypse is like the second in a chain of three that will get no attention until the one below it, you know, before it has, has, is completely finished. So I'm looking at these dates and I'm like, well, no fucking wonder your costs are, you know, potentially exponential because it's taking you three years to even think about starting production on these, you know, all the quotes for materials and shipping costs that you've got in 2020 are completely different in 2023. No shit, no shit that your additional pledge level and numbers are different and changing. Of course, because you've fucking building this Ponzi scheme to keep your company afloat and still not delivering things. Sure. And, and, you know, I'm involved in industrial distribution and parts production as my day job. And I completely agree with you, Leland. You know, Mike, I know you're, again, you're in the entertainment industry, so you may completely know what I'm about to say. You may not, but it's essentially like, if you're going to produce a part, you can almost guarantee that part is going to be more expensive three years down the line than it is currently. So even if, Even if these video or sorry, these board game companies are getting quotes on a current cost to make their game, if as Leland says, they're not even starting for three years, those costs for sure are going to inflate. And what frustrates me about that is number one, that should be common knowledge. Like that should be common economics for a company that produces a physical good like a board game. And by having that kind of business philosophy they're just shooting their backers in the foot yeah i i just think it's uh i think it's completely disingenuous in how you're running your business 
Am I taking crazy pills? No, no, I, I completely agree with you, but I also think, like, again, it's it's the platform has a huge part of it. Kickstarter as a platform has, has a huge rule. So Kickstarter does have a rule that you cannot have to – a company cannot have two simultaneous projects that are in the same genre. So Mythic Games could not have two simultaneous campaigns running for two board games. By all accounts, they could have a board game going and a video game going at the same time, but not two board games at once. Now, they also have uh, another stipulation, whereas you you cannot have more than three uh, campaigns that are unfulfilled at a single time. So that is currently where Mythic Games is at, which I believe could is a big part of why they haven't had a project for like a year, which is completely different from their track record from like 2017 because currently they have, they are sitting at three projects that are not complete, not fulfilled, meaning they cannot buy Kickstarter's rules, at least cannot put out another a campaign or launch another project. I wonder how steadfast Kickstarter is to that rule and how many people have either bent or completely broken it in the past because I mean, Kickstarter is still getting the skim off the top, right? They're still getting their percentage of, of these million-dollar campaigns. Like, Darkest Dungeon raised, like, $2 million because it's a very popular IP. I mean, that, that, that's mind-blowing for me. I had no idea it was this bad. I had no idea this process was going on. Uh, my, my question for you, have you ever been part, I know it wouldn't be a board game, but have you been part of a project that was a Ponzi scheme almost like it, it had sketchy funding. You didn't know if it was going to go forward or the project dropped off halfway through production due to funding issues. Have you ever been part of anything like that or have you gotten off lucky? <laughs> uh, I guess I've gotten lucky because yeah, no, I know I haven't been a part of anything like that, but I will say about Kickstarter is I've always had mixed feelings on Kickstarter because on one hand, like it is great to have, you know, um, smaller companies, indie companies, be able to, you know, get funding for projects just based off building an audience for that thing. But then I just remember there was sort of that time where Zach Braff funded a movie on uh, Kickstarter, and I think the Veronica Mars sequel was funded on Kickstarter, and um, it just became a thing where I... Like, I, I don't know if the, the rules on that have necessarily changed, but it does rub me in the wrong way when it, it feels like it's a system being taken advantage of in a lot of ways. That's what I feel, Mike. And to be honest, and you may very well have been the guest we discussed this on years ago, but Space Goat Games, when the uh, Evil Dead 2 board game that Leland and I invested in fell apart, I believe that was the second to last project I backed on Kickstarter. The last was a Battletech board game. It actually came through fine, but I was still too afraid of uh, Kickstarter to ever invest. And that was maybe 2019. Because I think Kickstarter had this weird thing. I think at first kicks, people thought Kickstarter was an amazing idea because say there's a product that normally costs $80, you spend $60 early, look, you get a great product. And I think for a few years it was like that. But some companies started to figure out, hey, we're not actually legal, legally obligated through certain loopholes to complete this product. We can use certain excuses to string things along, say it failed, and still get the money, even if it's like a scam. 
And uh, I'm not saying, of course, that's all situations in Kickstarter, but I think it's enough to make a lot of people wary. Yeah, just based off hearing your guys' experience, uh, I certainly will not be uh, investing in a Kickstarter project anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I don't Kickstart uh, anything anymore. I, I haven't for a number of years. I, I don't know. It's now like just, just the platform itself just leaves such a sour taste in my mouth. I just, it's like, it's it's akin to, to me, it's like akin to how gamified like a Twitch is, uh, right? It's just like everything needs to be gamified because everything needs to raise as much money as physically possible. Uh, and, and like, it's like every project has their funding goal set the barest, barest minimum, right? Like, like these, uh, I think it was, uh, six siege from mythic games had a funding goal of a hundred thousand dollars and they raised 1.5 million. Like they know they're going to raise more than a hundred thousand, right? Like now if they only raise 150,000, would this be a completely different story? They would have you know, a, a tenth of the backers that they had to deliver for, like, say they had a thousand backers that raised 150,000. So successfully funding it, but they have so, such a smaller amount of games they need to make. Is that, would that have helped them? I don't know, because when you get into like bulk materials, you know, cost reduce as well. So that's another incentive to have as many units as possible, right? As you can get. I just, I just don't know. So 2022 uh, was the first year uh, for Kickstarter in, in the, in the tabletop sector that they lost money, that they, they, their profits oh. dipped since 2014. It dipped wow. about 12 and a half percent, which amounted for like 33 million. In 2022, Kickstarter uh, in the board games raised 236.4 million it looks like uh, i just have a graph in front of me here to, to successful tabletop kickstarters now while that percentage was down apparently more campaigns were successfully funded so less higher ticket campaigns i guess is what that translates to you know question for you leland and i know i i've got you on the spot here but do you know if the overall board game industry went up in 22 even though kickstarter went down I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I should have kept the article in front of me, but I was reading an article uh, yesterday during prep that was really only talking about significant growth. Like projections out to like uh, 2030 were just seemingly astronomical to me. So I feel like it's more, it's mostly growth. But anecdotally, um, when I was at Origins Game, Origins Game Fair, and I, that was my first Origin. So I had, I, I personally have no frame of reference. But, uh, you know, I was with, you know, John and Emily of the Incursible Party go like every year and have been for, for a very long time. And there were, the, according to them, they looked like there was about half the size of what it normally is. Even post, wow. even post pandemic, even like after 2020, the, like the vendor hall itself apparently was much smaller. Um, it, I mean, I, I quite liked it cause like it was, it felt very spacious in there, even though it's a large like it's obviously a large convention center, but it still felt spacious yeah. in there. There were, according to them, uh, a far fewer actual demos of board games that were set up and available to do as you're walking the exhibitor hall. A lot of it, honestly, seemed like the the bulk of it was like TTRPG stuff, which I bought a lot. Of, I bought a lot of TTRPG stuff, and I bought a single board game there when I was there. So I don't know. I don't know if that speaks. I, 
Origins was never really the con to sell at either. That's more like Gen Con in, in August. So I don't know if that's if that really means anything. It's Obviously, it's strictly anecdotal, but I don't know what it says for the, for the overall hobby. I mean, there was recently a, a publisher that was in the middle of fulfilling a Kickstarter and they went bankrupt. And now that Kickstarter will never be fulfilled because there's nobody pick, to pick it up. So I don't know if that is, again, an edge case or if it's conducive to, you know, using Kickstarter as a platform, if that was a a large reason for them going under, incurring extra costs that they didn't anticipate. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I think Kickstarter is like right in the center of the hobby now. I mean, clearly you look at the growth. So in in 2014, their down year, they were in the tabletop. Kickstarters, it was 76.1 million. Wow. Less than a decade later, they're uh, like 236 million raised. So that's significant growth. 2021 was 270 million raised in, in successful tabletop Kickstarters. So it's obviously a huge driving force for the hobby and has played a massive role in where the hobby is currently. It cannot be discounted in the role that it's played, in the positive role that it's played. That cannot be discounted. Yeah, it, I mean, what you're basically articulating is it just sounds like uh, the creators have started to drop the ball. I mean, we joke about it, like how they always blame manufacturer, usually some random factory in China, for how you know their prices spike or board games are delivered late. But not to beat a hit, you know, a dead horse, but to refer to what I said earlier, if you're waiting three years to start to get. St- to start to get started manufacturing, you can't blame the factory <laughs> yeah. for saying prices went up by 20%, yeah, exactly. especially in recent times. Yep. Now, I mean, I know from my job, and it has to be the same whether it's board games or like engineering plastics, which is my industry. It's like, I know shipment costs from China went up like six times, six oh, yeah. fold. Oh, yeah. so that can't be good for, a, whether it's a container of board games or a container of plastic, it doesn't matter. Right. It's a container. So, you know, that kind of spike has to be absorbed by the consumer or the company as well. Yeah, I, I don't know, Leland, I got to be honest with you, and, and you're more the board game guy than me, it, that, that industry really rubbed me the wrong way. Like, I have no problem when I went to con- some cool game stores with you buying a board game off the shelf. No problem at all. You know, what I do have a problem with is the schizophrenic nature of the industry, in my mind. I mean, it... It's based, it seems like it's based on crowdfunding and, you know, then there's all sorts of issues with it. I mean, to be honest, this is selfish, but I was disappointed. I bought a limited edition Stardew Valley board game for $450 used and six months later, oh, we're going to reprint a million of them and now they're like $50 each. And I'm like, okay, well, fuck me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a poor decision. I don't like that. (laughs) Well, I mean, dude, it's something that's popular, like ridiculously popular. Of course, it's going to get reprinted. Like I could have told you that before you pulled the trigger on that purchase. Well, tell me next time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let me repeat this mistake. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me once, shame on you. (laughs) I've reversed that, I know, but specifically for your case. Yeah, I... I don't know. It's 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 interesting, Leland, because you've got me into so many board games that are literally part of my life now. If you're on Steam, which you're not, because you have a girlfriend, you see that 
I'm playing Wingspan and Splendor all the time, and sometimes Ticket to Ride and also Stockpiles. And you've gotten me into three of those four games. And I mean, I, and none of those games were kickstarted. None of those games were kickstarted, and they're awesome, and I all own them physically. So mostly, also due to you. <laughs> I I don't know. My my point is is that you know that's fine. I I wish I miss the simplicity of just having all the board games I want available at a physical retail location and just being able to pull them off the shelf. This Kickstarter thing just throws me through a loop, and I haven't had a good experience with it. I'm just being honest. No, I, I mean I don't I don't blame you for for that. Like I said, like we're obviously we obviously are you're always going to highlight the negative there is like thousands clearly of cases of successfully funded and delivered projects with no problems that don't get any light that don't get the praise because that's how it's supposed to work and it's like anything else right we always the squeaky wheel is going to get the grease you can keep it simplistic if you just stay away from kickstarter you can keep it simplistic as you want i mean Find your local your your local uh, your FLGS and and browse their library and maybe they can bring in something special that they don't have. You can keep it simple. It's just a matter of whether or not you're gonna play into the FOMO of it because that's another thing. The fear of missing out is a huge marketing tactic that again many industries use to tantalize their consumers. Kickstarter and the additional you know the the extra pledges you get the the what is it? Stretch goals they call it that you get. Like that's the point of it. That's the gamification of it. And that's what I, I don't like that shit. So that's why I don't use Kickstarter anymore. Interesting, Mike. Uh, do you play board games uh, at all? Like either yourself or like with a group of friends or anything like that? Some of these newer games? Uh, yeah, well, I have some friends that are very into it. I'm not so much into board games myself. Um, I have a friend that's super into the game Root. I don't know if you guys Nice. Root's great. Root's a great game. Moby, you would love Root. Yeah, yeah. He, my, my friend loves Root, and uh, like he goes to like tournaments and shit, and like. Dang. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's never really been <laughs> quite my thing. Although I did get into Dungeons and Dragons over the uh, over the break a little bit, so um, over the COVID break, and uh, I've played a few times since. So I know it's a little bit different, but I guess that's sort of tabletop. Yeah, or... it's in the same vein. Yeah, I think there's there's just so much overlap between the two. Like, yeah, it's great. It's great. Well, uh, that's honestly, that's all I got. I don't know what the solution is. It, it's again, it's like part of using the platform that allows like it's like, you know, outside of a very few select publishers, like every other publisher is like an indie. It's like an indie developer akin to an indie studio making a video game. Right. Like and like kind of I suppose like utilizing Steam to be able to get your game out there for these indie, indie developers like Kickstarter serves as a similar platform to allow somebody to just make their dream and like these people aren't making money <laughs> is the thing right they're not making hundreds of thousands of dollars so i don't know what the i don't know what it is kickstarter is great but it's also can be really bad so yeah i think the moral of the story here is listener is like really do your due diligence before crowdfunding i would say anything but especially board games to be honest right now I mean, I don't want to open the video game can of worms because that's more of like an early access thing. But for board games, for sure, just do some research. Look, yeah, just look. Literally, the you company. can company look into the track record exactly. of the company that's making. The you game. can click on the the Kickstarter profile. Will show you all of the pledges that they all of the campaigns they've already successfully uh, run, and you can go through if you want. Look at the latest one and see if it has been delivered yet. 
go through the updates that they put out. Go through the comments section. I mean, it takes time, but if you're going to be a, a, a diligent consumer, then that's the time you need to put in. So purchase at your own risk, I suppose. Pledge at your own risk, I guess. Like always. Like it's always been. There's no, there's no difference. It's how the platform works. It's how... All this shit works. It's like how buying into a fucking alpha that's been in the development for 10 years works. <laughs> and just because you want to fly a fucking spaceship, goddammit. That's how this shit works. And you have to consume at your own risk. So. That's right. Leland Steel will be on an in-game, like, board, like, sale advertising board in Star Citizen saying... This is your fucking game. Invest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Uh, that was a great segment, uh, Leland, but uh, Mike, carry us home, baby, in the movies TV segment. All right, guys. So um, as I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, I believe we are seeing a cataclysmic shift in the entertainment industry, just to use that verbiage again. So there's a couple points that I, I, that I want to bring up that I think are sort of relating to this idea that uh, I'm proposing in. One of them, obviously, is the writer's strike. For those who don't know, the writer's strike is between the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, um, and the Alliance of the Motion Picture and Television Producers, which uh, basically represents all the major television studios in Hollywood. So the main focus of this labor dispute is the residuals of streaming. According to a lot of these writers, uh, their profits they had, they had made a decade ago have basically been cut in half. We even saw this with Scarlett Johansson when she sued Disney for Black Widow because they released the movie on day and day. And so that, you know, a lot of her wages were lost for that. And she did win that lawsuit. But on the topic of streaming, we're also seeing the, the streaming bubble basically burst. You know, we've already seen the cancellation of Scooby and Batgirl. One of those that Scooby Doo animated. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Film. Yeah, yeah. Everyone forgets. Everyone was Batgirl, but you know, uh, no one, no one remember, remembers Scoob. Um, so there's a canceling of that, which from uh, David Zaslav, the head of WB, uh, WB and Discovery, his whole idea was, hey, let's make more cost-effective television with reality TV, and let's save you know these superhero movies as tentpole blockbusters. Um, and then we've also seen the same thing with Disney and other studios, but Disney specifically laid off over, or at least planned to by the end of the summer, lay off about 7,000 plus employees. And the majority of those come from Disney+. Plus. Um, side note, I find it interesting that when the whole stream boom initially started, I remember thinking, like, how is this even, like, profitable for these studios? And, like, go figure, it's, it's just not. not <laughs> right, it's just not sustainable. <laughs> Spoilers, it's not sustainable yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, like when I was, uh, I just remember when that, uh, what was that movie, uh, that Netflix movie that they released, uh, Bright. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I just remember they were saying it was like a million dollars on it. And I'm like, how does that equate to Netflix subscribers? Especially with people sharing accounts. But um, so, anyways, my question to you guys is with the WGA's gripes and uh, with streaming residuals and the streaming bubble effectively bursting, what is the future for streaming and the entertainment business in general going forward? And um, just one other point. So let's say like the theatrical experience is maybe the ex what we should be going for according to David Zaslav. Um, as of right now, people are going to movies less than they were before COVID. Um, about 49% of pre-pandemic moviegoers are not buying tickets anymore. 
So maybe uh, theaters is not the solution to that either. Back to the main question. What is the future of streaming and entertainment business going forward? That is a fantastic question. But since I never shut up, I'll let Leland answer first. Or unless you want me to go first. Go, I mean, like, I'm all right, go for it. And I'll just, I'll just you know, mimic some of your talking points and just make them better, sound better. <laughs> So you go. <laughs> you can't stop being so truthful. You need to, you need to actually make shit up. Um, okay, Mike, I will give you my number one simplistic problem I have with streaming at this moment, which is years ago, I quote unquote cut the cord of cable specifically to save money. And in the year 2023, with Crave, with Disney Plus, with YouTube Premium and Netflix, I am spending more money than I ever spent on cable. And I realized that about three months ago and I went, what the fuck has just happened? I got to be honest. So to play to your point, I'm a, I'm a ultra heavy media consumer, especially TV and movies, love them to death. And I just for finances, for budgeting, I can't or don't want to or I'm unwilling to keep the amount of streaming services I currently have because they're jacking up their prices by $2 a month every 6 to 12 months every service. So what you know what am I supposed to do because now I've got services stacking up with tax that are about $100 a month, which is what I would have spent on premium cable. So you know, I have this reoccurring nightmare, Mike, of me having tried to cut cable and getting more choice, and now I feel like I'm stuck with cable again, just under a different format. And not only that, but I actually feel like I'm getting less out of it. And why am I getting less out of it? It's because I enjoyed binging TV shows. I loved when Cobra Kai dropped their entire series on New Year's Eve, and I could have Leland and Ghost Marty, our old co-host, over and watch an entire season or most of it. That's almost unheard of nowadays because every streaming service wants to string you along, dropping one episode a week until their next tentpole show comes out. So if you want my personal anecdotal rage against streaming in 2023, it's that the cost has been inflated to now meet or exceed cable. For the services I use, and they no longer are as accessible. And I define accessibility by when you tell me Cobra Kai is going to release, I get the whole season at once. I know I'm being manipulated now. I know they are specifically dropping episodes once per week to keep me paying for the service. And if you can hear it in my voice, it, it, it does annoy me quite a bit. That's my take. I definitely agree with you. I, I do find it so funny how cyclical it sort of became where, yeah, like with the cable services and then the streaming. And I think the problem, I, I think the reason why people like streaming and got so used to it, uh, especially during the pandemic, when it was basically mandatory, um, people just got used to watching movies from the comfort of their own home. So it's, we're sort of at this crossroads, right? Where, People are not going to movie theaters anymore. We were talking about this earlier about some of these big movies bombing. People are not going to the movie theaters and, you know, services are spending less money on these streaming shows because they're not very profitable. And they're also cutting content. And so it just seems like the consumers have are losing either way. And obviously the movie and television industry will never go away. 
But I just think that everything to do with COVID and the way, like, obviously COVID is, you know, they couldn't plan for that. But as far as dropping movies on their service, these day and date releases, I think people have certainly gotten comfortable with watching things in the comfort of their own home. So on one hand, they're able to, you know, manipulate their customers. And then on the other hand, people are not going to movie theaters because they've become accustomed to watching things from home and would rather do that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, are you familiar? It's a classic. I mean, I'm speaking psychology here, but do you know about Pavlov's dogs? Like that cl- classical psychology experiment? Because I, I can feel listener in here yourself. So, and I again, I've got a long-winded point with this. So classical <laughs> psychology uh, experiment they did uh, this Russian guy got dogs to salivate in the sight of meat because, of course, the dogs want to eat meat. Well, then he introduced a bell and he took away the meat. Well, sure enough, when he rang the bell, the dogs started to salivate because they thought, you know, meat was associated with the bell. Where I'm going with that when it comes to movies and streaming is during the pandemic, consumers of media got used to AAA movies being immediately or closely thereafter released to streaming services like Paramount Plus, Disney Plus. And the problem is, as we've emerged from the pandemic and theaters are now fully open, people are used to, well, if I wait two weeks, it'll be out of the theaters and on my Paramount Plus for free, and I can just watch it at home in my bed. And uh, like I hear, and I've done some prep for this episode, that that's a major issue. We've got ourselves addicted to first-run movies being um, basically what HBO used to be in the 1990s. We've got, like, first-run movies very quickly put on streaming services. And I think that's really affecting the movie industry. To me, the, the, the you know, sentence, like, must-see-in-theater movie is just complete fucking bullshit marketing. To me, right? Like it's meaningless. It is absolutely fucking meaningless. It makes no like I I honestly cannot think of a single movie that I had a better experience watching in the theater than I did in the comfort of my own home. I just can't. I nothing immediately springs to mind. Whether that is visuals or sound or, I mean, obviously that's going to vary widely from individual to individual depending on their home setup. Blah 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 blah. But like I don't know. I just we, we've said so many times that we, uh, T-Hud used to go to theaters like a movie a week, you know, in our heyday, oh, right? Yeah. Like it was just ridiculous. We would go to see anything, anything under the sun. And now it's, no, I mean, wh- wh- I just, I don't care enough, I think. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe personally, I just don't care enough about the, the majority of films to take the time to find a showing to, you know, plan it with, like, if you're going with a group of people to, to figure out a time that works for everybody to go and enjoy, like, this communal experience of seeing a movie in the theaters with a group of friends. Like, I don't know if it's, like, worth it. And, and maybe that seems callous to put it that way, but it doesn't feel like it's worth it. What about Top Gun, though? Oh, Top Gun, dear. <laughs> Not worth it. Not worth it. <laughs> you're done. You're, you're asking the wrong two people here, Mike. Because Leland doesn't give a shit, and I literally, like, purchased a custom hairdo for the night that Top Gun came out, Top Gun 2. It was amazing. I had an amazing experience that night. Yeah, I took my dad and my uh, siblings to go see it on IMAX, like, so. 
But uh, I, I don't know. But I, I like, yeah, no, I don't entirely disagree. You know, um, I, I, I still definitely appreciate the theatrical experience. But I think I'm sort of, you know, a minority in that. You know, I like, you know, I'm a, I'm a movie, you know, I'm a, I'm a cinephile. Like I, you know, th- things like, you know, IMAX and the movie technology excite me. And so when someone, you know, when it is something is marketed to see it in IMAX or the big screen or they're marketing some crazy technology, like what was that movie with Will Smith where they had 120 frames per second? Uh, the one where he's fighting his clone? Is that, was that the one, the Gemini? Gemini Man, yeah. And, and yeah, I believe it. depending on the theater, you can see it up to 100. I do recall, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and to me, like, that's that's a gimmick. I, I didn't end up seeing it because I don't think there was any high frame rate theaters within the lower mainland that, you know, I also couldn't be too fucked to watch that movie. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, that, that is something that at times will, will kind of get me into a theater of just, just as like a, like a, a movie geek. But again, I understand... I am sort of in this minority that where generally, yeah, like people would rather just wait for it to come out. And I feel that way about a lot of movies that come out nowadays where normally I would go see in the theaters and I'm like, eh, like I'll just wait till they come out. Like I've, I've been noticing and I'm sure there's more research to back this up that I do not have, but it seems like lately the theatrical window for movies has been sometimes like a month. It feels that way. Maybe two. It totally feels that way. I agree. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, like, I remember I watched John Wick 4, and, yeah, yeah, I saw that, and then I think, like, I just remember popping up on, like, you know, digital, and I was like, holy shit, like, I feel like I just saw that movie, like, recently, it's already, like, you could already watch it at home, and, uh, I mean, fuck, man, but you can't beat that, though, at the end of the day, you just can't beat that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Mike, uh, completely, I'm a cinephile myself, I, I still see less films in the theater, because it has to be a film... Like, I want to support theaters, but it has to be a film I feel compelled to see in theaters. And honestly, the difference between thinking, will it be on a streaming service in three weeks or three months? For me, that's honestly a difference for a lot of films. Or else, like, to go to the theater will take a special initiative. Like, I've got an example for that. I haven't seen a movie in a theater with my dad in, like, 15 years. But my dad really wants to see Oppenheimer because he's into war history like I am. So me and my dad will be seeing Oppenheimer probably opening weekend together in IMAX. But it takes a situation like that to bring us to do it. Whereas otherwise, like I'm seeing uh, Top Gun 2 because Top Gun's my favorite movie in the world. and Leland knows I'm hopelessly obsessed with it. So that's like a reason why I'm there. I'm seeing... Oh, Leland, what was the last movie we saw together? It wasn't Quadrumania. Oh, was, that, was it Was it Dungeons and Dragons? Yep, yep. And I like that movie, but I specifically saw it in theaters because Leland and I wanted to do a bonus episode on it. Of course, you know, it's movies combined with board game that we both played. But my point is, Mike, nowadays in 2023, it's movie plus to bring me into a theater. There has to be a plus to bring me back. And to me, the solution's pretty simple. If every movie that I know comes out in theaters, I will not see until three plus months on a streaming service. I will see more movies in theaters. That's just me, but I'm saying that. It, immediately to mine, for, for me, I'm in that mindset about like every Marvel movie, like Quantumania. Emma and I just watched a couple of days ago. 
why when I'm like burnt out on it, why would I go to the theater to see a Marvel film when I know it's going to be on Disney plus in a matter of months? Like I can wait to watch them unless it's one I'm really, really hyped for, which in the current phase of the MCU, there isn't one. (laughs) Like, (laughs) no, Certainly not Quadramania. Oh. That's what gets your blood going nowadays. That was a weird movie, dude. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing. This uh, segment is called Jonathan Majors in the Future of <laughs> oh. Yes, please. Let's do it. Okay. So I, I, I'm going to get a brief history of Jonathan Majors. So really what the crux of this story comes from is that in March 25th, he was arrested for strangulation, assault, and harassment. And then since then, there's been multiple stories coming out against him. Our Rolling Stone uh, published a piece with about 40 people describing him as unpredictable, sometimes violent, and can switch from charming to cold in a flash. So real, like, psychopath vibes to this guy. A lot of these people signed NDAs and were very worried about the repercussions that they could suffer from Jonathan Majors. But the reason why I want to bring up Jonathan Majors um, specifically in this case is that this might be the swiftest rise and fall from grace I've ever seen in Hollywood. Okay, so in 2019, only three years ago, he has uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is his breakout role. And then over the course of like the next three years, he has The Five Bloods, he does Lovecraft Country, he does Loki, The Heart of the Fall, and The Devotion. And then in 2023, he has Creed Three and Ant-Man and The Wasp, Quantum Mania. And these movies, I was looking it up, were only like a month apart from each other. And so, Jonathan Majors was the guy. And this guy had maybe the most explosive three years in an acting career I have maybe ever seen. You know, he was signed on to Marvel, one of the biggest entertainment franchises, to reprise his role as Kang in several of their big Avengers movies and multiple other projects going forward. And now it's honestly seems like his career will probably never recover. So my, I guess my question to you guys, uh, it's actually two questions. The first one is, Marvel has yet to make a decision on Kang's future, so how does Marvel move forward from here? And two, why are actors such pricks? <laughs> I love that. I love so that. So here, okay, the, the, the way they, I mean, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, both uh, WB and Marvel like had an out with like this Flash movie, so easy to just have another universe Flash and replace Flash. Boom. It's canon. It's been done. Many, there's many versions of the character of Flash. Anyways, that's seeming like a really easy out. Same thing. Like We got infinite versions of Kang. Let's just see some that are recast. It's just so easy if they need to do it. I mean, maybe it'll hurt them, but that's the that's their out. That's what they can do. They can just write it off and smooth it over as this this is this version of Kang that we're going to maybe focus on, maybe draw in this fucking multiverse thing that they have going on a little bit. Just narrow the scope like the the very the first few phases were starting to build. They just kind of maybe need to taper it in a little bit here. And that might also improve the entirety of the next phases uh, for the MCU, in my opinion, because like the multiversal stuff is just getting it's just getting too exploded out. I think for me, it's it's one thing to have that work as a function in, like on paper on in like a comic universe um, where you have just so many different people able to contribute to it 
and it doesn't need to be as cohesive as it as the MCU needs to be now. They've already shown the first three phases. They've set the precedent of cohesion for us. Four, five, and six, I mean, so far, feel so, feel so disjointed. Like, there's no connective tissue. Or, or that, and it doesn't even feel like there's there's a, a particular direction that you could maybe theorize that they can go other than, oh, it's just all multiverses. It's all connected. So that, that's what it is. But I mean, that, I feel like that they have an easy out. If they need to recast, it's a different version of Kang. They can still use Kang if they want. Go for it. I don't know how much they have shot. I mean, I think season two of Loki is dropping soon. So that's obviously shot and ready to put out. I mean, at the end of Quantumanium, there was a stinger with Loki and, uh, and an Owen Wilson's character in it, right? A version of Kang on this stage. And they had a little, it was like five second thing, but... It's clearly it's already there and there's like momentum that they kind of have to go forward without scrapping entire projects. And Loki's one of their very popular Disney Plus series too. Like everybody fucking loves Loki. Like that is like the top echelon of their series currently, right? That and WandaVision, like those two I think are are top tier in, in their Disney Plus series. So I don't think they can get away with scrapping season two of Loki and they're certainly not going to try to do it. Yeah, um... Sorry, two points on that. One, when you talk about cohesion in the Marvel Universe, I am still confused how the multiverse works in that, uh, <laughs> you know, like in, in those movies. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, combined with Loki and that Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Strange 2, yeah, yeah. It, it honestly, it depends on the director and the writer. That's how you decide. That's who decides how the multiverse functions in the MCU right now. Whoever is writing the project or directing it, that's just how it, and they go with it. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly feels that way. And then, uh, but you were talking about the Quantumania stinger at the end, and um, I thought it was really... Can we spoil this movie again? I guess. I mean, I kind of... Okay. So I remember, like... And I don't think this is a completely relevant point, because I still think it can, they can still, you know, do the whole multiverse thing. But I just remember watching the movie thinking, like, I'm like... Like, knowing that the whole Jonathan, the Jonathan Majors controversy had sort of come to light, and this was... And I watched it a few months after. And I'm watching it, and I'm like you know, they could probably do that multiverse thing. I mean, he's like, they haven't shown like a bunch of, you know, Kangs or anything. Like, you know, how do we know there's not a different looking one? And then they have this post credit scene where yeah. he goes to like the, like the council of Kangs. Yeah. And it's a stadium <laughs> packed full of Jonathan Majors. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, holy yeah, shit. That's true. I was like, if you just didn't put that in there, this job would be so much easier. They did dig the grave a little deeper with that, didn't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mike, I, I thought of the same thing. When I heard all that stuff coming to Jonathan Majors, I'm like, wait, but they filled this fucking stadium with Jonathan Majors. What else are we supposed to do? There's Jonathan Majors everywhere for, like, every planet. Okay, I, I got to insert this in, but, like, have either of you seen Creed Three yet with Jonathan Majors? Not I yet. haven't. I heard he's incredible. Not yet. Um, I actually only recently watched the Creed franchise. Same, same. Actually. I like them. I like them both, man. I actually like the second one more. Yeah, Drago, Drago, like uh, you know, um, Dolph Lundgren. He was used not too much, but man, the scenes that he had with Sly, excellent, excellent. Well, that was the thing I, that I honestly kind of almost, and that's going to tangent here, but that sort of like lost some of my interest in the third one because. I felt like the second one, as cheesy it was bringing back like the son and dad character and doing the whole legacy sequel, it felt like the stakes were as high as they could sort of go. And I, I don't know, when I saw the preview for Creed 3, I'm just like, 
that's just not quite as interesting as uh, bringing back, um, you know, Ivan Drago's son. Right, right. And so that I think that's kind of what's kind of prevented me from watching it. I'm sure it's still great, but, you know, just the, the hook isn't as there for me as Creed 2 was. Yeah, you know, the whole Jonathan Major situation, I mean, like, I, you know, he's still innocent until proven guilty and whatnot, but his situation just shows, like, how you have to keep, like, yourself as clean, as sparkling clean as possible in the movie and TV industry, because people will latch on to anything and your career can be over. If Jonathan Majors is found completely innocent until, like, tomorrow... His career probably still took a two-year hit, something like that, because he was a star on the rise. Like the media was starting to build him up. Like this guy is gonna, you know, we've had unfortunately Chadwick Bosman, you know, pass away. Um, but you know this this person is gonna be the new, you know, pr- kind of actor to fill this this role or this spot in Hollywood. And then, you know, all of a sudden he has a situation and it's pretty rough, but. Uh, I mean, it does show how finicky Hollywood is, in a way, and just, I used the term before schizophrenic, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but, you know, I think back to, like, studios are so often, when they can pull a plug on a project early, when an actor does something wrong, they do it, and the studio goes, you know, oh, we don't support this kind of stuff, but honestly, the kind of stuff that Ezra Miller, I hate to go back to The Flash, has admitted to, or for certain be caught doing is like horrific stuff and it's compounded because there's multiple situations and the studio still releases a movie starring Ezra Miller and they even make trailers that minimize Ezra Miller because they know that he's done this this shit or he's accused of this stuff and they still release the movie and it's just like it's very random to me it's very hypocritical yeah, I know. There's definitely no consistency, uh, and I, I mean, there, there's there's so many actors um, uh, that just kind of seem to get away with certain things, and then there's others that don't, and there just doesn't seem to be any consistency towards uh, for most of the time, or not even just actors, just like people in the entertainment field in general. I I, I guess maybe it just comes to down to how you you know how good of a PR person you have. Maybe I don't know. Well, I mean, you being in the industry, Mike, do you find yourself um, self-censoring, for example, what you may put on Facebook or other social media? Like, are, is it on your mind? Are you aware of it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and how do you feel about that? Does it frustrate you? Or are you just like, well, this is part of the game? Um, it's, it's a little bit of call me, call me. Yeah, there's some frustration to it. But at the same time, like, especially like working on a, <laughs> on a Disney uh you know, kids TV show, um, yeah, there, there does, you know, there, there does kind of weigh some responsibility on there to, if I'm going to be able to be also promoting the series, you know, maybe probably not best to be say promoting from like, um, if I'm going to promote from my personal account, you know, put, putting certain things out there, you know, because maybe I'm already drawing some traffic towards when I'm putting up, reposting something, uh, that Disney's put out. And so, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've definitely, um, like I, my Instagram, for example, is, is private. That's awesome. Well, uh, Mike, where, where can, uh, where can we find you? If, uh, people are looking for your socials, if anything, or do you have anything you want to promote any causes? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at 
Macintosh17, lowercase m. It's my Instagram handle. It is private, but you know, um, but for a listener, I might make an exception. <laughs> I also have uh, just a portfolio website, Michael, uh, michaelherman.art. And um, yeah, uh, watch Young Jedi Adventures. Uh, you know, listener, if you're a grown adult, might not be your cup of tea, but if you want some High Republic stuff, it's the best you got right now. And if you have kids, they'll probably love it. So We've got lots of Star Wars fans, lots of animation fans here. So check it out, uh, listener. Leland, lead us into the end of show stuff. Our website is ttpopcast.com. The TI Popcast on Facebook. TT Popcast on Instagram. Uh, all of Mike's socials all the, will be in the show notes uh, so you can check him out. Uh, I'm uh, on Twitter at Leland underscore Steel for as long as Twitter is a thing. Um, that is who I've been. I've been Moby, uh, co-host, and, uh, you know, I want to appreciate uh, our guest host there, Mike. So thanks so much for being on again, man. We really appreciate it. Boys, always a pleasure. I always have an empty slot in my absolutely packed and busy schedule. <laughs> I appreciate it, buddy. You're seriously a pro. You're, you're, you're on the permanent rotation. So... Uh, with that, I'll say thanks again, Mike. Thanks, listener, for listening to us. And my usual segue out, take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production.